Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, Robinhood is known from taking from wealthy in order to give to the poor. A new version of Robinhood today is it comes in the form of Robinhood, the company that's based in Palo Alto, California, that provides a commission-free app for trading stocks. And with us here is the co-founder and co-chief executive officer of the company, Beju Bot. Beju, thank you so much for joining us. So can you just give us a sense of what the company does and how you make money? Absolutely. And thanks for having me on. Uh, Robinhood, our mission is to make the markets more accessible for everyone in the U.S. Um, What we do is we have an an app uh, for iOS and Android, and we recently announced uh, a desktop version of Robinhood as well that lets consumers across the country invest in the stock market. And we cut out the things that really create a, a difference between the rich and the poor when it comes to investing. So there's no minimums to get started. There's no five to ten dollar commission every time you trade, and it's it's made to be really easy for people that are getting started, and also really powerful for people that have been using it for a long time. And we announced it about two years ago. It's been growing very quickly. Um, we've crossed now over three million users in the U.S., um, and we've transacted over a hundred billion dollars in the last two years, saving our consumers over a million or over a billion, excuse me. <laughs> dollars in commissions in total. So the business has been growing, you know, really well. And uh, it's it's really introduced just a brand new generation of consumers into the stock market. How do you make money? The way we make money is we've got a paid version of Robinhood, which lets consumers uh, borrow from us. So for as little as $10 a month, you can get up to an additional $2,000 in your account. And we also collect interest on the cash and stocks in your account. And we we split that with the consumer. And just to follow up on that, why do you believe that a $5 or $6 commission is what's keeping the majority of non-wealthy investors from participating in the stock market? Because that kind of speaks to the issue of trading in and out and that somehow the commissions are what are the obstacle rather than a viable long-term strategy to make money? Well, I think it's, I think it's commissions are a much bigger deal for consumers than, you know, as you or I that kind of are in. But why? I mean, if you're not going to trade a lot, why would, let's say, you know, buying shares and paying your commission and holding the stock for whatever period of time, why is that the barrier? Isn't that the cost of doing business? No, it's really not. I think we've got a generation of consumers that are not that are not really willing to pay for digital services. And when you look at what goes into facilitating a stock transaction, it's purely electronic and there's really no difference between that and sending an email. So I think it's it's one of those things that when it once it goes away, it gets a lot of people to start thinking, "Oh, well, maybe I'll I'll try this and I'll kind of see how this works." Um, and it just it feels like a less cumbersome commitment to make. So are most of the clients that you have, do you have a sense of how old they are? 
Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the, the really interesting things about our company is that the majority of people that use Robinhood, and I think it's something like 90% of our consumers are under the age of 40. And so it's this new generation of consumers that sort of commonly called millennials um, that that they're using this as kind of their first entry point into investing in the stock market. And they're they're getting started today when they're a lot younger um, rather than waiting until they're a little bit later in life in their 50s or 60s when, you know, I think a lot of companies like E-Trade and and TD Ameritrade see their consumers getting online. You know, uh, there's this sort of stereotype that millennials aren't as interested in stock trading and see more value in, say, Bitcoin uh, than stocks, mm-hmm. especially because they grew up with the very present 2008 experience. And I'm just wondering mm-hmm. how much truth there is to that based on your findings. In other words, is there a big group of millennials who are interested in, in trading individual stocks? You know, that's really what we're seeing. I mean, if you take a look at our, our numbers, right, we've we've got over 3 million people that have accounts with us that have signed up in just the last two years. And you can put that side by side with E-Trade, which has about 3.6 million consumers. Um, so we're, we're becoming, you know, a, a very sizable market participant and largely on, you know, on the grounds that young people have chosen to use Robinhood. So I think that the market demand is certainly there. Um, and I think it's it's one of those things that's happening relatively quickly. And I think when we look at this in a couple of years, we'll see that the younger generation of consumers um, will actually amount for, I think it'll be a bigger audience than, than the last generation. And what about backing? Uh, who are some of your investors? Yeah, so we've raised... Uh, over, I think, $176 million over the last uh, few years. We're backed by top-tier investors like uh, NEA, uh, Google, Google Ventures, and Dreesen Horowitz. Google Ventures, indeed. Um, also, some some celebrities like Ashton Kutcher and Snoop Dogg um, and the gang from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, if you've ever watched that show. So... All right. Well, yeah. uh, thanks for uh, enlightening us on uh, Robinhood. Much appreciated. Uh, Baiju Bot is the co-founder and the co-chief executive of Robinhood. They're based in uh, Palo Alto, uh, offering uh, what they describe as commission-free uh, trading in equities. Artificial intelligence and the use of artificial intelligence in the economy is expected to reach about $36 billion by 2025. This according to a report from a uh, intelligence uh, marketer. This is uh, Grandview Research. And here to help us understand how this uh, new technology will be used in industries such as the restaurant business as well as retail is Xing Tao. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Remark Holdings, and he joins us now on the phone line from Las Vegas. Uh, Xing, thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Maybe just begin by talking about a a sort of subsidiary of yours called CanCan. That's K-A-N-K-A-N. What is it and how does that fold into the overall uh, business of Remark Holdings? Great. Thank you for having me. Um, 
We uh, we had uh, built. It's been about three years since we kind of laid out the vision to build CanCan, uh, which is a big data artificial intelligence platform, and that was really to marry all the different assets that we had currently owned and had you know looked to uh, potentially acquire in the future. Uh, you know, going going into really 2013, we found that you know the business that we were in it was very tough to compete, and if we didn't have uh, you know if we didn't care about the profits and all that, so it was pretty important at that time to really make a uh, a big bet at that time uh, to see how do we create a technology platform or a technology that you can't just throw cash at the problem uh, in order to uh, enter it. And and that's really how we uh, first, um, you know, kind of made the move uh, into that field. And we realized that in the beginning it was like, look, you know, with at that time, you know, the social media accounts were, weren't really very well integrated, um, you know, now through Three years later, you see a um, kind of a there. There's a need for a bridge between the data that you see in China and and, and other parts of the world, given that China is close to the uh, kind of foreign groups going into there. Uh, and so we created a platform to marry the data uh, from both sides, where um, it would serve two purposes. One is to help you know obviously help our own businesses, uh, but number two, uh, create solutions uh, for businesses that are trying to uh, enter into China. Uh, or Chinese business trying to uh, enter outside of China into the U.S. So, Shing, uh, just sort of to zoom out a little bit. So, uh, Remark is a data collection company, right? You collect certain data, and this partnership with Ken Ken allows you to analyze it and use it uh, more for your clients. Is that accurate? Uh, no, Ken okay. Ken is, a, is, is our AI platform that we built from the ground up. Okay. And then with respect to Remark, it's uh, you get data from a number of different sources uh, that your subscribers can use to analyze consumer habits, credit, et cetera, right? So what we do is we create uh, we create a technology to be able to scrape all the data from you know all the major social media sites around the world. Number one, number two, really any site with a lot of consumer information. Now, obviously, that has a lot of data as we have over 1.3 billion uh, unique uh, user profiles, and then there needs to be uh, you know something to really connect the dots. And so that's what we've built is the AI platform basically is trained by the data that we have because you know. Strong AI is driven by strong data. So um, it's fascinating. And I, I'm wondering what the challenge is for you to gain access to that data you're scraping from all these other sites. I know that this has been uh, held up as the greatest value of, of the big companies uh, is really their data, right? So is yes. it hard for you to get access to it? And, and what's your business model? I mean, do you get subscription fees and you use part of it to uh, to license the data? How does it work? Yeah, so, so we, we um, have a number of different partnerships. Some, some we you know it, it's it's uh, primarily just the scraping technology that we're you know able to get public avail- publicly available data better than others. Uh, that's number one. Number two, we have data partnerships with uh, both Alibaba and Tencent, uh, where we open up our data and they do as well, and we basically utilize the three groups' different data to train the AI models, which is why it works so well. From a business standpoint, um, you know, as as you know, there are a lot of different AI companies out there, and that's the buzzword, you know, we're able to monetize very quickly because we uh, are providing solutions in a number of different areas. Uh, the first and, and the biggest areas is in, is in fintech. Uh, in China, which is the first market that we launched in, less than a third of the people there actually have a credit history, as we know, in the U.S. 
so the way the financial institutions are uh, doing their their lending is based on your behavioral history. Presumably, we have the most of it given all the social media history uh, that we have, and, and a big target for us are the millennials and, and sort of the the younger demographic. Uh, from and because because we have so much data, and because that's really what creates the foundation for the AI platform, we're able to move into a number of different areas as well. It's not just fintech, but it's also in, for example, like uh, food safety. So one of the uh, one of the projects that we're working on right now is with the Shanghainese government, where the where the China government has mandated where you uh, have to wear a mask and a hat uh, in order to prepare food. Uh, so using our technology, um, being able to monitor a whole area and be able to identify who's who, uh, be able to de- decipher if a person's wearing a mask, a hat, or both. Uh, you know, our AI allows us to do that and to pick up where there might be a violation of that uh, policy, and then it sends directly to the health agencies to make sure there's, um, you know, actually integrity in that in, in that data. So from that to um, you know, uh, in, in Hangzhou right now, where, where Alibaba is based, there they're going through a mandate where they're uh, banning motorcycles uh, on the street uh, to prevent, uh, you know, slow down pollution. But how do you know the difference between a motorcycle and an electric bike? So our AI, because it's been trained by so many images, uh, you know, over 10 billion images, allows us to actually be very accurate in how we decipher who's who and what's what. Xing Tao, thank you so much for joining us. Xing Tao, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Remark Holdings based in Shanghai, China. But he was coming to us from Las Vegas. Taxes and debate in Washington over changes in tax policy. Let's find out more from Wayne Weingarten. He is a senior fellow in business and economics at the Pacific Research Institute. Wayne, uh, let's just begin by uh, maybe laying out from your perspective what needs to change for tax policy to help the economy grow. Well, if we're looking at the proposal that's out there, the most important part is the corporate income tax reform. The, the U.S. corporate tax system is so out of balance and so uncompetitive compared to all of our global uh, uh, global competitors. And I think that's something that's very well known. So the idea that we're bringing that tax rate down from 35% to 20% and the fact that we're going from this global tax system that nobody else has to the territorial tax system brings our our uh, corporate tax system into line with uh, the, the global competitors. And importantly, what it's also going to do for us is it's going to stop this kind of movement of inversions and in companies moving overseas. That's going to all stop, and the incentive is going to be to set up corporations here in the U.S. Wayne, how do you feel about uh, the health care angle that's been pulled into this tax debate uh, with the Senate provision removing the uh, Obamacare uh, payment uh, that are required? That's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a bet that a more complex bill is going to be easier to get through than something perhaps more simple. And, you know, perhaps that bet is right, perhaps it's wrong. You know, individually, each makes sense, right? The, the mandate doesn't make sense. It forces people to buy uh, insurance at a cost that they 
don't believe is is worthwhile for them. Wait, wait, so, hold on, wait, 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 just hold on one second. No, I mean the idea was to sort of sustain Obamacare, but I, I guess I, what I want is. Do you think that this is a prudent move? And do you think that uh, pulling out this Obamacare mandate is the right move? It's the right move if it can pass, yes. I, 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 don't believe, I believe it makes it a little bit more difficult to pass because of bringing in the Affordable Care Act issues into the tax reform, which is already complex enough. But if, if it does pass, we, we're going to have based on the budget scoring window that they have to kind of fit this bill through, it helps move tax reform along in terms of the deficit uh, constraints that it faces. And it's in itself, it's a good policy. So combine those two things together. Yes, it's a good move. Uh, politically, though, you're bringing in a host of other issues, and that needs to be kind of worked out. Wayne, uh, can we just go back to the corporate tax reform issue for just a, a moment? Is is there any evidence that uh, lowering corporate taxes will lead to greater economic growth? Oh, there's, yes. In, in the, if you look at the economics literature, undoubtedly, the corporate income tax has a, a very large impact on uh, kind of how much capital uh, companies are going to invest, how much they can reinvest in their workers. So there's a lot of connection between how high or how burdensome your corporate income tax rate is and how much economic growth the country can uh, can sustain. Okay, so, so it, then it, what, it is. So I was going to say, so, okay, so having said that, why or do you believe it would be uh, relevant to, in a sense, have a test? Uh, for example, if you do offer this tax reduction to corporations, they are only able to claim it if indeed they follow through on what you just described, which is spending more on research and development, spending more on hiring. Well, you don't necessarily want every corporation spending more on R&D, I and mean, this is gets to what drives growth. And for us to try to determine what's the right investment for every corporation through the tax code, I mean, that's how we end up with this complex you know, th- tens of thousands of pages of, uh, of tax code. So what we want is a, ideally is a much more simple, flat tax structure that makes it kind of uh, easier for corporations to spend their time talking about how do we get the best products to customers and not worrying about how do we kind of game the tax system to, to maximize profits. If we do that, we'll get stronger growth. Some companies we may want to contract because they're, they're not growth industries. We want more investment in areas that matter. So as a kind of from a government perspective, you don't know that. And so you want that to be as neutral as possible so that we can kind of sustain the, the, the most dynamic economy we can create. Wayne, is there anything in either the Senate or the House bill as they currently stand that concerns you? There's, there's several things. I mean, certainly on the personal income tax side, there's uh, a lot of kind of trying to bang square pegs into round holes. I mean, the big problem, I would have loved to have seen the payroll tax be included in this tax reform, because when you're talking about middle-class tax relief, middle-class and lower-income people don't pay income taxes. They pay payroll taxes. And so this drive to try to create uh, lower-income and middle-income tax relief, but not including the most important taxes to those uh, individuals, has, has, has led to a lot of unnecessary complexities and backward-bending kind of strange provisions. So I, I would have ideally liked to have seen those uh, removed and actually to start addressing how can we fold the payroll tax into this uh, broader tax reform. Are you concerned at all about the fact that the deficit is uh, poised to expand by one and a half trillion dollars uh, with a conservative estimate? Yes, 
the, the, the deficit is definitely a problem, but the, the problem with the deficit is it's a spending problem. And that's something that with or without tax reform, we need to address. Uh, and that needs to be addressed through fundamental budget process reform, fundamental spending reform, so that we can bring kind of our expenditures into line with what we're able to kind of generate from a tax revenue. If you look at how much revenue the tax system raises kind of relative to the size of the economy, it, that's been fairly constant, even though we've had major changes in, in terms of tax revenue. But we look at the expenditures, and that keeps rising, you know, long-term. There's lots of wiggles around it, but rising long-term relative to the size of the economy. That's the problem with the deficit, and we need to bring the spending under control. Otherwise, we're not going to get control of the deficit no matter what we do on taxes. Wayne, just quickly, uh, we were speaking yesterday with a group of real estate executives at the Burden uh, Executive uh, Summit here at Bloomberg, and one of the things they talked about was the deductibility of state and local taxes. Uh, do you believe that that will be erased in this in this tax bill? Um, no, I think if you're going to, it should be erased. Let me start with that. That it, it, it's the right policy to get rid of it, but you have strong interests behind it. And, and when you start looking at how do we get the bill a bill passed, it seems that some kind of measure, like the House, where they have the the property taxes, can still be uh, included up to I think it's ten thousand dollars. I think you're going to have some sort of compromise on that, simply because there's too much interest to uh, to keep it going. But yeah. under an ideal tax reform, absolutely, you would get rid of that. You, you, yeah. you need to broaden the base and get the, uh, the tax rate down. Yeah. And that's an important area. Wayne Weingarten, thank you so much for joining us. Wayne Weingarten, Senior Fellow in Business and Economics at the Pacific Research Institute in Falls Church, Virginia. Let's turn our attention now to a piece of paper, a very expensive piece of paper, indeed a $450 million piece of paper that just happens to have the uh, painting, I guess it may even be a canvas, uh, that is um, Leonardo da Vinci, a work by Leonardo da Vinci sold for $450 million at Christie's auction house yesterday evening. And here to tell us more about it is Bloomberg's art reporter, Katya Kazakina. And I usually get your name right. I beg your pardon. I guess I was stunned by the $450 million price tag. Tell me, tell us about Salvatore Mundi, or Savior of the World, and why would anyone pay $450 million for a single painting? Well, it's the last Leonardo. So uh, that's that was how Christie's promoted it, and it's actually true. You know, Leonardo, there are only less than 20 Leonardo paintings uh, in the world right now, and that was rediscovered uh, in 2011. It had been uh, really uh, restored, pretty hands-on restoration, so the condition is not great, but it has this magic about it, right? It has Leonardo, one of the greatest, if not the greatest artists of all times, and uh, it's the last one. And so, for someone, there's there's so much wealth. And, you know, we've talked about it a lot. You know, in in the growth of wealth has been unprecedented, and so there are a lot of billionaires in Asia and in America and in Europe and emerging economies who are building their museums who need, you know, t- they need a showstopper. And yeah. and we've seen over the past month, it's only been on tour by Christie's for a month. It drew 30,000 people. They showed it in Hong Kong, they showed it in London and San Francisco and in New York. And during last week, people in the rain waited 
to get in and to see this work. And Christie's, they're, they're really smart marketers. They, they put together this video of people looking at the painting in awe, transfixed, some with tears in their eyes. Leonardo DiCaprio is among them, appears suddenly. You know? And so the profound effect that this painting, whether or not you know, it is the yeah. real Leonardo or not, like it kind of beyond the pale, it doesn't matter, you know. Well, well Katya, I, I want to pick up on a point that you mentioned here, which is this highlights just how much wealth is sloshing around. I mean, we're talking nearly a half a billion dollars here for a painting. Yes, it is rare. Uh, a lot of things are rare in this world. It doesn't mean that there is a willing uh, buyer for nearly half a billion dollars, especially considering that it's way more than twice as much as the last high mark of $179.4 million for a Pablo Picasso painting. Do you have a sense of how small the group is of people who not only could afford this, but who would be interested in spending this uh, for like a vanity project or, or, or what else could it be? It's, um, I don't think it's, it's, the group is not small at all. And that was so striking is because, uh, in 300, up to 370 million, there were three people who were doggedly competing for it. Um, so there were three people in the world who could afford it at that level. And, you know, you mentioned the Picasso. Of course, Picasso was $180 million, but there have been private sales a lot higher, up to like $300 million that we know. But we've never even heard those numbers in the sales room. We've never, you know, $200 million, $300 million. Dollars in in the context of an auction, it it it's, it it sounded surreal. You know, it never happened, and so I think that yeah, I mean, the money the money is not an issue for people of that caliber. I think of that wealth. So you know, and it's not a rare, just a rare thing. There are a lot of rare things. You know, this, you know, if we, if we accept that this is the last Leonardo. It is the last Leonardo. There is nothing else like it. So I think for people, who, you know, and and interestingly. You know, I spoke before the sale with the the specialists at Christie's, and I don't think they didn't know it's going to go that high. They kind of were thinking it's either going to sell on one bid to the guarantor of the work, or you know maybe it will go to like one fifty. <laughs> but you know, I think it surprised everyone. Well, I wonder if it surprised the owner or the oh previous God. owner, uh, the Russian billionaire Dmitry uh, Rybalovlev, right? Bravo, yeah. Uh, he uh, bought the painting in 2013. He paid about $128 million. It was a private sale. Yeah. So $128 million in 2013 becomes $450 million in 2017. Not that, bad. That's correct. But, you know, also remember that... Um, yeah, yes, but but he was he got it for one hundred and twenty seven and a half. But the person who sold it to him got it for eighty, like yeah. literally, like a few days before. It's a, it's a <laughs> so, good it's a good way to show just how much the wealthy are are getting wealthier right now. And sixty four, I'm sorry, in sixty four, just an interesting factor. But sixty four years ago, the same work sold at an estate sale for forty five pounds. Amazing, just forty five pounds Amazing. to four hundred fifty million dollars in sixty four years. Katya Kazakina, art market reporter for Bloomberg News. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.